Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of The Hollywood Podcast, covering the latest in film, TV, streaming, and social media. I'm your host, Max Geshwind. Stay tuned for today's episode. All right, everyone. Well, thanks so much for tuning in to today's episode, and I'm so glad to have with me today Emmy-winning production designer Todd Felstead, who you might know from his work in shows such as Looking, Now Apocalypse, Hellstrom, and Glow, which he won his Emmy for and received a, a second Emmy nomination, in fact. And now he's out with two new series, The First Lady on Showtime and Roar on Apple TV+. Todd, thanks so much for chatting with me. Thanks for having me, Max. Um, so I wanted to start with The First Lady, which I'm currently in the middle of, and episodes coming out every week. So unlike Roar, we have to wait throughout the summer when a brand new episode comes out. Um, would love for you to sort of start at the beginning of this. Can you share how this project came to you and what gravitated you towards working on The First Lady? Sure. Um, so I first got that call from uh, my friend who's a line producer, uh, is really amazing, um, Pavli. You know, Hatsuki, we've worked together many, many times over the years. Um, and uh, she gave me a call and said that there was this project happening. It was in Atlanta. Um, she didn't give me too many details yet, but then she just uh, gave me the general synopsis that it was. The first lady is played by, you know, at this point, it was just Viola Davis as Michelle Obama. We didn't have any the other cast members in, in place yet. Um, and that uh, we would be building um, a complete duplicate of the White House. I mean, like for like the real deal, <laughs> every single room, upstairs, downstairs, east wing, west wing, um, and uh, and that that would be the first um, order of business. So I had not done a White House before, and uh, that was extra, extremely exciting. And then also the fact that it was uh, across 11 decades, that was very exciting as well. Mm -hmm. So that, um, that basically was the first bit. She called me, told me about it, then she sent me the script. So I was like, okay, I got, I got to do this. <laughs> it's too good. It's amazing. <laughs> Yeah. And I want to touch on the White House because obviously we've seen the Oval Offices and iconic rooms within the White House and other film and TV shows of the past. Um, but did you look sort of mostly at the actual layout of the actual White House or were there any other past uh, shows or films you saw of the past that you drew inspiration from in designing the White House? We in the we show. definitely tried to avoid looking too much at like film or television in terms of how things have been done in the past because we were right. trying to do something that was very uh, authentic to the periods. Um, so we really, fortunately, there's a lot of data out there on the White House. Um, you can find, you know, the floor plans for just about everything. The one thing that was very complicated was the East Wing because that has not really been depicted in film and television before. And there's not really a, a bunch of plans out there for that. There's, that's not something we all know about. So we had a little bit of guesswork there. Uh, and a lot of research. We had a, a full-time researcher on board pulling uh, imagery and photographs and documents from the you know, Library of Congress, et cetera. So there was a lot of uh, a lot of early work going on before anything got built. And, uh, and that was largely research. Yeah, and the East Wing, which obviously serves as the office of the First Lady and her staff. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe you focus specifically on the Betty portions of the yes. series. Um, which even though that's just one block that still covers several decades, like the show obviously covers over a century, but even a specific block covers several decades. You have, you know, her younger years in the 1940s, but it goes up until the seventies and maybe even later than that, as we continue watching, um, later in the series. Um, but can you talk a little bit about the 
family photos or the personal photos that you were able to um, receive of Betty that helped you in designing either her home or, um, you know, during when she was younger and later on when she lived with Gerald? For sure. Um, so there was, uh, you know, the, the, to the, go back to the initial part of that question. So when we got into building the White House and the, finding all the locations for the Betty Block that was shot first, um, so uh, every, each of these actresses had a very you know, specific schedule to contend with. So Viola was going to come in and out at a certain date. And then we got Michelle Pfeiffer to play Betty Ford and her dates were up first. So all of her scenes were shot first. We built the entire White House first that was used for the remaining blocks, uh, just redecorated and redesigned for those characters. Wow. Um, and while we were doing that, in conjunction with building that, um, our art director, uh, Gina Cranham, kind of had to take on the White House as her baby. Because in a lot of ways, you know, we were, you were correct, we were doing 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s for Betty alone. Um, so by the time we were about halfway through that process uh, and shooting Betty's stuff, we realized, oh my God, there's just no time to start on Michelle Obama. It's impossible. And they brought in a second team. So the second team and, and us kind of overlapped. And we shot out the White House and then went into locations so they can start redoing the White House uh, for their blocks. So it was it was quite a it was quite an adventure. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but in terms of fighting imagery, the fortunate thing about Betty Ford is she was kind of a celebrity after a while. Like the nation loved her so much, um, as you know, as her husband once said, she left a bigger mark than he did. Um, it's very easy to find photos of their homes and you know where she grew up, uh, their first house together. Um, in uh, Virginia, um, the, their home in Palm Springs, like you can see, you know, online and in Library of Congress and, and other other books, lots of imagery. So we had a lot to work with. Um, and I remember Michelle Pfeiffer and uh, and Aaron Eckhart coming into that the family home in Virginia for the first time, one we'd found a really good match to in Atlanta, and then just you know remodeled the entire thing. And they were so shocked by how much it looked like the images because they clearly had done their research as well. Yeah, that's really cool how you mentioned that the same Oval Office set and the rooms in the White House were used across all the blocks of the show, the Obamas, Fords, and um, Roosevelt's, because that that is the one commonality, the one constant throughout all three blocks, and that those sets are sh- shared by by all the all the storylines in the in the series. Can you speak to the subtleties in the in the differences between the way the Oval Office and the way the same rooms look during the three distinct time periods, sort of the fashion sensibilities or the design sensibilities that changed over time? Oh, for sure. I think um, that the interesting thing is that we did shoot it in a really unusual order based on our actor's schedule. So we started with the kind of middle block uh, and then yeah. we went forward in time um, you know, to do the Obamas. And then we went all the way back in time to do the Roosevelt's. That was the order of shooting. So that definitely created some, uh, I'm sure, some stress for the second team, because in a lot of ways, um, things that are in the White House in even the Betty Block were did not exist yet in the Roosevelt's world. Um, the Roosevelt's actually built the, uh, the Oval Office. Um, it did not exist. And a lot of the things that were um, designed uh, for the, the West Wing had um, his disability in mind, FDR's disability in mind, so that he could move about more freely. Um, so a lot of that stuff was kind of baked in to the first couple of blocks, but then as they got to the third block, I think that team had a lot of uh, kind of undoing, <laughs> you know, there's a little bit more minimalist at times uh, back then, but then also there's a lot of patterning. So of course, 
each block has its own textures, patterns, colors, fabrics, drapery, furniture. I mean, it's wallpaper. It's, it's a lot of detail. And, uh, and I think the process of undoing it for the next two was on them. But for us, it was kind of the, uh, we had to originate everything. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask specifically about the East Wing, since that's something that the audience is the most unfamiliar with going into a series like The First Lady. Obviously, they know so well the Oval Office and even the entrance, you know, when Betty is first walking in in one of the first episodes. But they are unfamiliar with that East, the East Wing and when Betty's walking into a largely empty um, office when she first becomes First Lady. Um, Can you speak to um, what you were able to have the resources you had in designing the East Wing? Yes, there, there were uh, some photos here and there. I mean, you know, again, that's uh, not nearly as visited a space um, because, you know, ironically, you know, kind of the point of the whole show, um, the First Lady's role is not considered very important. It's more of a, as I believe uh, Mrs. Roosevelt says in one of the, Eleanor says in one of the scenes that is not a role it is a circumstance Mm -hmm. (laughs) so of course there's not a lot of that out there there is some however in um from the obama years for sure so that helped us in terms of what the architecture was um but uh yeah the the east wing is very different it's it's a series of offices in a long hallway um there's a larger room that in our block was used for um the era uh, ratification scenes um where betty has uh several women uh, working in the in the actual White House to um, try to ratify the DRA in multiple states. Um, that that office is actually there. All of the uh, spaces that you see in the show do exist, um, and they're built to spec. There's a couple of things that you have to do for camera, like you know the hallway has to be a little bit wider to make sure you can catch the you know people passing each other in a single move if you're handheld. There's there's certain specifications you always keep in mind, but. In general, that uh, that whole area is something that's not really seen on, on film much because there's not been a lot of stories about the First Ladies yet. Mm-hmm. Suzanne Beer, who directed all the episodes, is obviously no stranger to world building at this scale. She obviously did Bird Box and in TV, The Night Manager and The Undoing. Um, can you speak to what sort of working relationship you had with Suzanne during the filming? Sure. Um, the, the fascinating thing about that was that uh, this was prior to vaccinations. Okay. Um, so we were in the thick of, of the pandemic. And when I first got to Atlanta, it was very clear that it was going to all be Zooms. Um, because with Suzanne, you know, she's got to be working with the actor. She's going to be in a very tight bubble. So she had to be very protected. Um, so we did pretty much everything by Zoom and FaceTime. Um, location scouts. Um, sometimes I would go with the location scout. And, you know, just FaceTime Suzanne from there and show her around. Uh, sometimes our AD would handle that. Um, but, yeah, it was, it was complicated because there was so much risk associated with absolutely everything, a literal life and death at times. And that was, that was kind of a lot uh, on top of everything else that was occurring. So everybody was very protective of Suzanne and the performers to ensure that they didn't uh, get overwhelmed by that or anxious, um, that they could just continue to do their creative work. Um, she's definitely, definitely somebody who is, um, uh, very obsessive about beauty. Um, Mm -hmm. she wants things to feel not just authentic, but glamorous. Um, and, uh, and she likes to idealize things to some degree, not romanticize them and not, you know, overdo it, but she likes things to be elegant. And that was very helpful, um, to have a director who wanted those things, uh, who wasn't trying to go for super gritty, 
um, but something a little with a little more polish. Um, that's always something designers love. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I wanted to segue over and talk about Roar, which um, was just, it just dropped recently, I think in April last month on Apple TV Plus. It's a genre bending anthology series that weaves together these eight different stories told across the episodes. Um, it comes from the minds of Liz Flayhive and Carly Mench, who you obviously worked with on GLOW. And I want to sort of ask you about that, since I assume not just Liz and Carly, but there were also, I assume, several others of the same crew that you worked with previously on GLOW. Was there a comfort there in working with the same team? And as a result, did, were you able to have a shorthand that made working easier on war compared to other Absolutely. projects. That's definitely the case. And especially yeah. with something like an anthology where, um, you know, for your normal television sh series, you've got a continuous story with the same characters. Maybe a new character comes in, maybe there's a new setting, what have you. But with this, with every single uh, episode is a completely different world, different cast, different director, just, you know, different settings, different time periods. So that was a, uh, it was kind of like making movies back to back, end to end, overlapping one another and having Liz and Carly, who I adore. I mean, we've worked together for years. Um, being the spearheads there definitely created a shorthand. It also created a comfort zone wherein I knew what they wanted usually. And even when I didn't, I know what our, our path is to get there. Um, we know how to collaborate um, as, you know, as much as I've ever collaborated with anybody, I have super comfort level with them. Uh, they're very hands-on. Um, they love to see everything. Um, they're not the kind of, uh, of showrunners who just say, yeah, whatever, you know, let us know, show it to us. They want to see it all. They want to see every prop, every graphic. And, and they have really good taste, <laughs> really good eye. Um, so it's really fun to work with them. We, we, actually, um, we actually hit it off with the first season of Glow and, and never looked back anytime they call them there. That's great. And I, I do want to touch on the fact that this is an anthology and correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe this was the first time you done an anthology series. Obviously you've done several television shows, but an anthology was something new. Can you speak to the difficulty of working on a project like that and knowing that every episode will have its independent and entirely different world? Yes, it was, uh, we, we called it um, like schizophrenic design. Yeah. <laughs> because uh, one day you're you're in the middle of making a contemporary horror sh uh, series uh, show with um, Cynthia Revo having these bite marks appear on her skin, and then while you're shooting that with like Rashida Jones directing it and is lovely, and uh, and you're trying to get into all of the specific details of that tone and how that works uh, visually, you're also planning a western, <laughs> you know, which uh, you know is kind of a comedy um, uh, western with a little bit of. Um, anachronistic dialogue and like that's its own vibe and then while that's happening you're also trying to build an apartment for a duck because Mara Weaver's episode um, which was directed by um, by uh, Liz actually um, but <laughs> the whole idea behind that was the camera was going to be low enough from the duck's perspective to see areas we would never see mm -hmm. on a set so we had to kind of rethink how we build things uh, both for camera and for the comfort level of the duck so they would just fly away they're trained, but we use real ducks in all the scenes. So you're combining all of these aesthetics, all of these um, efforts at the exact same time, and they're overlapping. And you're trying to keep, you know, make sense of them both um, story-wise, but then also visually, and then trying to find some kind of through-line thread 
which is very complicated when these stories are so disparate. <laughs> uh, but I think our through line thread ended up being the women themselves, the characters themselves, and the kind of surrealism element. Um, and then, of course, the polish, you know, the, the final polish on the show needed to look expensive. Yeah. And in a way, it's not all too different from The First Lady, even though you have all three stories told partially within an episode. It's still these three completely independent worlds operating separately from each other. So that's interesting how that sort of relates. Um, A difference, though, between the two shows is you had Suzanne as your director on The First Lady for all the episodes. But for Roar, you had a different director almost for each episode. As the production designer, does that kind of force you to be more on your game knowing that you sort of have a different boss for each episode and is that does that present more of a a challenge starting from square one it does it it definitely does there's um you know there's every director has their own picadillos their own like specificities and things that they that they fixate on and you want to always be welcoming to those ideas you always want to make the director feel comfortable and i i always think of it like the director is a little kid and it's their birthday party and they should have everything they want all the time and enjoy themselves the whole time so that everybody else can enjoy themselves. Yeah. And so each director, I try to treat it like it's their birthday party. <laughs> you know, like, this is all you, let's, let's go. What do you want? Who's invited? Let's go. And with this, you've got, you know, somebody trying to sort out horror, somebody trying to sort out a Western, somebody, you know, the, our director, Soyeon Kim, who did two of the episodes, the Western, and then also uh, the woman who was kept on the shelf, Betty, Betty Gopin's episode. Um, has just such like a, a, a fun energy and she's so excitable and, and, uh, and like just running around like she's great. And then, you know, you have uh, like Anya Adams who directed um, Alison Bree's episode, uh, The Woman Who Solved Her Own Murder. And she's, she's fun too, but she's also more focused and specific. And she just kind of, like, so each of them have their own personalities and I loved all of them. They were all wonderful to work with. And it was also nice to work with all female directors. Um, I have worked with a lot of female directors over the years. I'm one of the people that's been fortunate in that regard. But this time it was all female directors, all female producers, uh, female leads. Most of my crew was female. It was it was really exciting and, and fun and led us all towards a very specific um, uh, flavor for the series. Yeah. Uh, the female lens. And I, I do want to expand on that because that's not just limited to Roar, obviously, that continued with the first lady by obviously having a female director throughout all the episodes, as well as a largely female um, crew behind it. And obviously cast glow, which you worked under Liz and Carly with for several years. So can you talk about sort of working on a lot of these female centered feminist stories over the last several years and how that might be different from working on more male dominated stories? Yeah, yeah, it's um, it's something that uh, happened a little bit by accident, mm-hmm. and then gradually I realized that I preferred it in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, growing up gay in the South, I always had uh, you know that to, to overcome, and I always had that sense of not being seen or heard uh, to some degree. Um, so I I can relate on a lot of levels to um, you know the dilemma of being a female in the world. <laughs> not uh, not on all levels, but on some in some ways, maybe more so than than your average heterosexual man. Um, I can. Uh, pick up on some of those things a little, a little more so. And very early on, I was, I was working with a, a lot of women um, directors. I worked with a close friend of mine, Pamela Romanowski, on one of her first features. Um, I did a pilot for Patty Jenkins uh, before she did Wonder Woman. Uh, she did an NBC pilot. We worked together, and I started to to sense this, this certain flavor. And the joke for me is always like, 
you know, who do you listen to more, your mom or your dad? <laughs> and on a set, you know, the director is kind of the parent in a way, in, in addition to being the kid at the party. Um, and when, you know, you want to make your mom happy, you really want to make her happy, but dad might annoy you sometimes. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So it kind of uh, equated to the, the uh, parent-child relationship to some degree. Um, and I found that I actually really enjoy working with, with women more. Um, maybe because they're a little more collaborative, you know, they, they tend to be more collaborative. Um, of course, you know, every director is different. There are male directors I adore and there are female directors I don't want to work with again. So, yeah. you know, it's, it, we can't like really completely divide it out. But, uh, but the general principle is that I have, uh, I've really enjoyed working with female directors and, and seeing um, just their, their perspective on things. Their, um, their lens is very different. It's very unique. It's, it's uh, maybe a little kinder, a little gentler. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and for my last question about these two series, can you point to a specific set that you worked on on The First Lady and then on Roar that you're particularly proud of, of having accomplished? I would say on The First Lady, um, we had this one uh, series of scenes that had to be shot in Grand Rapids, Michigan, um, in both the 30s and the 40s when, uh, when Betty was a teen and then when she meets Jerry um, when he's running for Congress. And uh, there were so many sets within one like block where, you know, where she worked, there was the department store, Herpelsheimer's, and then surrounding that area are, you know, there's a, a, a vintage TV store, there's an ice cream shop, there's a barbecue, like all these places had to be invented, but also from photos of Grand Rapids, Michigan's in the 40s. So it was yeah. like, it was kind of like getting to like look through stuff and go, let's make that, let's make that, let's make that. And that was super fun and exciting. And then you show up on that day. And you just see like picture cars everywhere and people on wardrobe walking around. You're like, Oh my God, you're <laughs> in forties. This is amazing. Yeah. Um, that's very rewarding. Um, and then with roar, I think probably my favorite one was, uh, was the woman who was kept on a shelf because the joke is visual and that's pretty rare. You know, usually the, the joke is something else and the visuals back it up or, you know, but in that case, you know, rounding a corner into a room and seeing a woman placed on a shelf as an object is ridiculous and crazy. And that was just super fun. <laughs> the many, many meetings about how high is the shelf? How big is the shelf? Does she sleep on it? Does she eat her meals up there? Like all this stuff uh, went on and on for weeks and it was a blast. And then of course, once, you know, Betty Gilpin got in there, it was, it was not, all that went out the window. It was just, you know, <laughs> a whole right. new world. And for my last question, I'm, interested to know if there are any projects that you're working on now or about to work on. I believe you have Beacon 23, which you're mm. in the midst of with Lena Headey he and Stefan James. Can you share a little bit about that? Sure. That um, That's written by Zach Penn. Um, he's, uh, he wrote uh, The Avengers and Free Guy, um, uh, the Spielberg film, um, the video game movie, I'm forgetting the name of right now, Ready Player One. Um, Wonderful guy, really, really brilliant writer. And he's uh, taken that from Hugh Howley's novel um, of the same name, Beacon 23. It's about a lighthouse in space. Um, I have actually completed the design on that. My supervising art director is kind of like staying on as they shoot um, because there are no locations. It's all mm -hmm. in you know, these sets that we made uh, for space. Right. We did five and six story sets. It was really intense. It was the first time I've ever done a show where there were zero locations, everything had to be built. Yeah. And is this the first time you're working on something sci-fi related or 
that takes place in space? I have worked or, on some sci-fi that was more you know, comedy sci-fi, like it. a little bit of parody. And then, you know, obviously Greg Racky stuff has a sci-fi element to it. But yeah, this is the first time I, I built multi-million dollar space station sets. <laughs> That's exciting. Well, we're all looking forward to seeing it, Beacon 23, hopefully out sometime in the new year. I'm going to say next year, yeah, Yeah, for sure. (laughs) Well, um, congratulations again, Todd, on First Lady and Roar, and um, we're looking forward to Beacon 23. Thanks so much. I really appreciate it, Max. Thanks so much for tuning in. Please take a moment to subscribe to The Hollywood Podcast for free on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Until next time, you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Max Geshwind. Thanks for listening.